0: Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Professionalism as a Racial Construct, Tanya Martinez Galanucci, Executive Director of the Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging, Angie Avila, OD Manager of Development and Communications, and Mary Ellen LaRosa, OD Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator, speak with Leah Goodridge, Managing Attorney for Housing Policy and Mobilization for Justice. They discuss Leah's UCLA Law Review article on professionalism as a racial construct, digging into the ways that professionalism is used to regulate people of color.
1: Professionalism has been weaponized against people of color to really subjugate people of color, to put them in their place whenever there is very harmful actions that are taking place.
0: To deflect objections to racist behavior.
1: You are more offended by people challenging racism than you are At the people perpetuating racism.
0: And to silence discussion of social justice.
1: I want everyone listening to this podcast to understand that there was silence in the legal field. And there was silence really across the workplace.
0: Here's Tanya martinez Galanucci.
1: Welcome back to Building Belonging.
2: We are joined here today by Leah Goodrich. And I was just saying... It was like Christmas morning at Odeeb this morning because we knew that we were going to sit and talk with Leah. (laughs) So I just want to introduce you to folks, but obviously you're going to have a chance to introduce yourself. And I just want people to know why we are so excited to have you. In March of this year, Leah published a groundbreaking article called Professionalism as a Racial Construct. She put into words the hard truths experienced by blacks and other marginalized groups in the legal industry under the guise of professionalism. Using her foundation and critical race theory, Leah not only deconstructs professionalism in the legal industry to reveal the component parts rooted in white supremacy and subordination, but she also masterfully illustrates the concepts with anecdotes that resonate with far too many of us. And I know I am definitely one of those people. And I think I shared with you, Leah, that when I first read your article, there were points where I literally cried because it was so validating to know wow. that it wasn't all in my head, that these things yeah. really were happening to me and so many of us. The way that you classify these experiences into concepts and a framework provides us with tools to talk about these issues in a way we didn't have before. And I think we just we have to give you your flowers. And thank you for doing this for all of us. It is so courageous. And we're excited to have you. So let's jump in. I'm going to introduce myself and pass it on. My name is Tanya martinez Galanucci. I am the executive director of ODEP, which stands for the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging for the New York City Bar Association. And I'm passing it off to my colleague, Angie. Hi, I'm Angie
3: Avila. I am the manager of development and communications with the office of Odeeb. I'm going to pass it over to Mary Ellen.
4: And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, and I'm the diversity and inclusion coordinator for ODEP and I'll pass over to Leah.
1: Well, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm Leah, Leah Goodridge. My full role, I have actually two jobs. My main one that I've been doing for the past seven years is I'm managing attorney at an organization called Mobilization for Justice. In a nutshell, I do housing policy and I've been representing and supervising people who represent tenants in eviction proceedings actually for the last decade, but I've been at MFJ for seven years. And then I'm also on the city planning commission. So that is another role uh, that's more of a side job. And that particular one, you know, we have, I would say about 80% of the proposals that come before us are housing developments, housing proposals. Um, They look like, you know, proposal to build a residential building in Queens or the Bronx or Brooklyn, and we have to approve or deny them. Amazing. So you're just
2: basically out here doing God's work in all areas of your life. (laughs) Thank
4: you. Thank you, Leah, for joining us today. We would like to start off by exploring what belonging means to you. You could just give us a few words on what belonging means to you, maybe where you found it.
1: I think that for me, belonging means that you can be and bring your full self, authentic self in a space without constantly being in a state of double consciousness, without constantly thinking that you are going to be admonished or diminished or fired just for literally being your full self. Authenticity is big. As we'll get into later, professionalism plays a really big role in diminishing authenticity.
4: For our listeners that aren't familiar, Leah, could you... Talk a little bit about professionalism as a racial construct and dive into your essay a little more.
1: So I've been an attorney in legal services for at least a decade. Before that, I have also had lots of professional experience before becoming an attorney. And one of the things that really struck me was that there was this sort of informal code, a sort of informal pattern. And the best way I can describe it is, and let's say a lot of people resonate with this. Let's say that you are black, you're a person of color, you're on your job and a white colleague engages in racist behavior. The thing is, I actually don't like to use the term microaggression anymore because I feel like a lot of things that we've been calling micro aren't really micro. Same. So I just say mm-hmm. racist behavior. Yep. And you call it out. A lot of times, the first of all, before you get to calling it out, A lot of times there is an expectation of how you would respond to this kind of very harmful conduct. And oftentimes the way to to respond to it is to ignore it, is to brush it off under the guise of being unbothered, and most importantly, under the guise of being a professional. But if you really unpack it, the person who is engaging in this behavior, do they have to be professional? Do they have to ascribe to this understanding of professionalism? Most of the times they do not. And so you're here facing this situation of where someone is engaging in behavior that's really racist towards you, and you have to decide how you want to respond, and you might not respond. That's one part of professionalism as a racial construct. Another part of it is sometimes when you do respond, and this happened in a lot of institutions in June 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, when a lot of people of color, a lot of black folks were pushing back at their institutions and saying, we're not handling racial equity correctly. And you know what, this is way beyond George Floyd. What about salary equity, what all of these things? Well, what were they told? I think you're being unprofessional right now. I think you need to play the game. I think you need to rush things off. I think you need to learn how to be in this type of environment and acclimate to it as opposed to me, the the racist person changing. So that's in a scenario, one aspect of professionalism as a racial construct. It isn't per se to say that there shouldn't be any standards in a workplace, but it is to say that our understanding of professionalism and the way that it has been used is it has been weaponized against people of color to really subjugate people of color, to put them in their place, whatever there is very harmful actions that are taking place.
2: Absolutely. And I love the idea that folks use, especially in litigation of concept or phenomena being used as a sword and a shield. And that's exactly what I think about professionalism. It's used as a sword and a shield against marginalized groups. Yes. Like you're either being unprofessional for calling out racism or you're being unprofessional because you're wearing your hair naturally and it's just like right there's no winning
1: or your clothes even lipstick someone actually asked me if it's okay to wear bright red lipstick even things that's well I don't know if it's small but every aspect of personhood
3: I echo Tanya's thoughts on the essay when I was reading it I felt as if you took the feelings and you just put pen to paper and composed it in a wonderful piece of literature where, you. you know, it's it almost it, it's an art form, what you did. It's more than just, it, it felt like I was digesting a piece of art and something that really resonated with me. So just getting that out there, but to get in and dissect a little bit your essay, can you explain major points of the essay and starting off with bias and discrimination threshold? To quote your essay, the higher the threshold one had to tolerate bias, the more polished the attorney or paralegal appeared. This was particularly the case for women, people of color, LGBTQI people, and people with
1: disabilities. Let's say we're all in the workplace together and something happens to any of us. You're at a business meeting, you're sitting there quietly and all of a sudden a colleague just all of a sudden says, Tanya, I actually feel like the point that you said was really silly. And I don't know, it really speaks to your level of competence, just in front of everyone. And you might be wondering, well, goodness, would this person really do this if I were a white male? Has this ever even happened before? Then when you leave that meeting, you come and you you talk to a colleague. I'm not myself now. I'm just going to play a role to just explain how this happens. You come to my office and you're like, this happens. And I tell you, well, you know what? It is what it is. That's how Bob is. Don't let him see you sweat. I know how it is, but you got to brush it off. Let's do the next day. Then you say, well, I don't want to brush it off. I don't want to brush it off because Mm -hmm. I feel like this person humiliated me in front of all of these people. It wouldn't have been done if I wasn't a woman of color and, and I don't want to brush it off. And then I say to you, well, I don't know. This is just how the legal field is. And this is going to happen every day. And so either you're going to learn how to deal with it, or maybe you shouldn't be an attorney. That's the bias threshold. Right. The reason why I wanted to do it as a scenario is because oftentimes when I explain it, people are like, yeah, yeah. But then when I do it as a scenario, people are like, yes, this has happened to me. Either I've been the person giving this advice or I've been the person receiving it. And so I just want to say it's really common even to receive the advice from family members, from friends, because it's often seen as a coping mechanism. But the reality is, and this is what happened to me, is it's not, I'm not unbothered. Um, I'm in a therapist later, or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm spending half of my workday talking with another colleague, literally spending half of the day trying to figure out how to navigate the working world as opposed to just doing my job. So the bias threshold in a nutshell is just a belief that you actually show how professional you are. By enduring racism, sexism, all of the misogynoir, that you brush it off, that you just keep on going, that you ignore it. There's this word polished. And we see this oftentimes in places where someone is going for an executive director position or a higher level position. Oh, they're so polished. And oftentimes what they actually mean is that this person will be completely unbothered. They won't challenge it. They'll just keep it moving. They're dignified. They'll go high. That's often what that word is used for, to describe in these types of scenarios. So that's the bias threshold.
2: The way that you can describe this in a real situation that we can envision, the way that you put words to this gives us so much power. And I think you, you nailed it. You really nailed it. In your essay, you point out that in the legal industry, it can be a rite of passage to endure toxic work environments and abusive work environments. And that is true through and through. That's true in the non-for-profit world. That is true in the private sector and big law everywhere. That is true. And there's layers to this, right? Because the environment, even taking out all the complexity and nuances of racism and sexism and all those things, it's already at a pretty poor idea of what a culture should be if this is the threshold, right? Now add the heightened intensity for a marginalized group that's now then expected to laugh in the face of racism and take it like a champ talk about the condescension there (laughs) and so I think again you just show just how complex it is and I think everyone experiences it to some extent but let's not play games here it's definitely worse for people of color it's definitely worse for black women it's definitely worse for trans people so it's there's layers to this and we have to be better We
3: absolutely have to be better, right? It's almost like they're minimizing it to oh, just hazing, right? Workplace hazing—you put up with it.
1: Let's say that I tell my experiences and I go to, and, and this has happened to me before, and I and I still love them all, but you know, it really is just a difference of approach. But I'll go to an older black attorney and say this happened, and I can't believe this happened. Oftentimes, the response was yeah, well, you know what? This incident also happened to me and it was way worse. And here I am. That's just how it is. But at the end of the day, it's another way of saying that's the status quo. Let's figure out how you're going to put up with it and deal with it as opposed to challenging it. And the reason why is we already know, and we'll get into this, but sometimes challenging it can lead to consequences because most people don't. We're trained not to. That's another angle of the bias threshold. Or it might not even be the racism. You might say, I can't handle these 40 cases. Well, back in my day, well, I had 80 cases. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. It's not a badge of honor to endure abusive work practices. That's right.
2: And that's the survivor bias, right? Like that's another bias that contributes to this dialogue that's really problematic. And, you know, it definitely comes, we've seen it from like the old timers, right? Our mentors who we share certain identities with and- There are generational differences in the way we approach these issues. And I feel like sometimes that's where we clash, right, with our mentors and folks. And that's why it's really important to have more than one mentor and various mentors and and all the mentors you can have. Because there will, you know, everyone has blind spots, including your heroes. Your heroes can have blind spots.
1: I thought for a long time that it was a generational issue. Part of it is. But another part of it, too, is cultural. Yeah. Part of my family's Black American, the other part is Caribbean American, and a lot of it is you're lucky to have a job, okay? So they're doing whatever, all right, just go in the next day. So that might not even necessarily be an age thing, but what I have noticed, especially among a lot of my friends, we talk about how we're socialized as well. If you're first generation that you went to college or you're first generation that you're first born in the United States, it's this whole, like, you know, you're lucky to even be there. Even if you are, you're like the best at the job and what's going on is extreme. So I also meet a lot of millennials and a lot of people in my age group who also are like, well, it is what it is. You know, you got to keep it moving. It's not just a generational thing. It's also cultural.
2: It is. You're absolutely right. And I think it also has to do with your risk tolerance. Are you willing to deal with the retaliation that can come with this? And if you are first generation, and this is the job you're relying on to break those social barriers, you might make a cost-benefit analysis right. and say, this just isn't worth it. It just isn't worth right. it. Let me buy my house. <laughs> Let me get right. some comfort. Let me get some safety. I'm not going to lose it all over this. And I get that, too. But I think, you know, you reminded me. And I wasn't sure if I was going to share this. I'm going to share it anonymously. But, you know, one of my heroes, who I still consider a hero and a friend and a mentor, gave me some of the most heartbreaking advice in a situation like this, where I was literally just in tears, being like, I can't believe these people are lying through their teeth and saying these things and all this stuff. And you know, and she meant it earnestly and and with her through her heart of hearts. And she was just like, you know, Tanya, you are way too passionate about this. You're way too emotional. I don't think you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you are way too emotional. Okay, this is the this is the part that hurt. This is the part that I needed to process (laughs) before I engaged again. Leave it to the white people who are
1: not emotionally oh, triggered no. by this. We can oh, do the no. Real words. I used to be so annoyed by this, but I'm not because as time has gone on, I've realized that this is part of the white supremacy. A lot of people, of color especially, are socialized. It really to, is. We're in survival mode and we're socialized. We're literally just trying to survive. A lot of times in the workplace and also thrive but a big part of it is just navigating the workplace and oftentimes it's very violent and yeah. so i have mixed feelings about it but i have also had oh, this, yeah. <laughs> this a similar experience of where it's just oh but then you have to think about it you have to think about the fact that that person oftentimes they also have a very high position of power and they still think in a certain way that it's not only jarring, but it's very limiting.
2: Yeah. And it's just, it's one of those things, even the best your intentions. The best intentions, right? Even with the best intentions, you can still do harm. And I guess my only advice, if anyone, my unsolicited advice is if you are mentoring a person of color and they tell you that this is how they feel, believe them. Just listen to them. You don't have to make a commentary. The first step is believing right. them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And telling them not to use their voice
1: to speak up for themselves is never a good option. (laughs) You know, the speaking up is key. But the reality is that a lot of us have been taught to, quote, unquote, play the game. And play the game, those three words, what it really means is go against your own interests. Do not advocate for any form of racial equity. It's funny. This word is often used, but it doesn't mean be neutral, it's not actually neutral. Neutral just means literally don't bring up Mm -hmm. anything to do with racial equity. If something happens that's racist, anti-Black, transphobic, homophobic, misogynistic, xenophobic, be neutral, don't talk about it. That's not really neutral. So a, a lot of folks have been socialized to ignore, disregard, and if it is brought up, to laugh it off. You also have to remember There is historical underpinning specifically with Black people seeking liberation during the antebellum era from being enslaved and then being labeled as having drepatomania. That was an actual word for an actual mental health disorder. And it literally was called the disease of slaves wanting to run away. So there is a historical underpinning of likening people who want to challenge, who want liberation in some form and saying, you know what, you're being irrational. You're being unreasonable. You need to play the game. Mm -hmm. You need to still stick within this system because that's the next step after someone is called unprofessional. I just had, had this recently, an interaction. Someone was racist. I called it out for what it was. And then they said, oh, you're bringing that, well, you're unprofessional to even say this. And I'm like, oh, really? So I said, I used my own article. I said, well, this is professionalism as a racial construct. Yes. <laughs> and then they said, oh, well, if you think every person is racist, then I think this is a mental health issue for you. This is irrational. But this is what no. your mentor is saying, basically. There's this idea that yeah. you somehow have a mental health issue if you can't acclimate mm-hmm. to racism. Instead of putting the burden yep. on the people perpetuating the racism and saying they need to change, it becomes about you. This is what professionalism is a racial construct is. You
2: have an amazing quote on this. And I'm just going to read it because I think that this is, is encompasses this. If attorneys on the receiving end of microaggressions, bias, and racism are considered sensitive for not laughing along, why are the attorneys who engage in harmful behavior not also considered sensitive for their inability to handle
1: criticism about their conduct? Yes. Ding, ding, ding. I mean, I, th- this- Hello. I, I want to provide a little bit of background on this. When I saw this play out in one instance, this happened in housing court. A couple of years ago, a lot of tenants' rights attorneys were just fed up with what was commonplace in housing court, the racism, the sexism, you know, all of the- comments that were being made. I mean, you know, you go to court, you want to just do a regular negotiation, and then you're met with behavior that you shouldn't have to put up with. And so a letter was sent to the chief judge by tenants' attorneys, and then there was a meeting. And I remember throughout all of this, some of the, not all of them, but some of the landlord's attorneys, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. This is outrageous. Their reaction, and they likened it to a generational thing. Well, this is just people need to build a thicker skin. Back in my day, you said a joke and people just moved on. A joke was a joke. Now no one can joke anymore. And then it was sort of, okay, but you know that you were actually demonstrating an example of someone who has a thin skin. Because literally someone is saying to you, you've seen me for five instances and you keep confusing me with the other brown person and you can't handle that. And you're now saying that instead of you changing that this person has a thin skin. So I I think even in who has the power to have the narrative of who has a thin skin and needs to change and who doesn't is a part of this as well.
3: (laughs) Noting that it's expected for people of color or marginalized groups to accept, tolerate, forgive racism, you also wrote about being... Uh, you also wrote about how being offensive is applied differently, which I think we've touched on so much already. You've described it as selective offensiveness. Can you please describe what it, that is for our listeners? And you broke it down into four stages. We've touched on it a bunch already, but if you could just let the listeners know why and how you broke it apart.
1: I think a good example of selective offense is one that I think a lot of people experienced. a lot of people of color, a lot of black people experienced in 2020, June, 2020 and beyond. And that is where, like I mentioned, people started challenging all of the isms in their work, not started, you know, the obviously people always, but it became of a different tenor. Challenged the isms in their workplace really wanted a lot of structural change for a lot of people. The response to that was people were offended by their tone, by how much they were so serious about it, by how much they pushed for it, by how much they wouldn't let go. And the conversations around that. And this is my experience, as well as a lot of experiences of attorneys that I know, a lot of, you know, things take time and I just don't understand and we're moving along and I just don't understand why people are so angry and we've done so much. And then it became... Instead of really looking, people became more offended. And when I say people, I mean the people in power. I don't even want to say that it is just white supremacy extends to everyone beyond white people. So sometimes it's also people of color who engage and ascribe. Say it in the for the people so in the back. You had a lot of. That's why I say people were sort of like, if you're challenging the person at the top, now this has become a personal issue, and it's like you are more offended by people challenging racism than you are at the people perpetuating racism. A lot of these institutions have had people who are engaging in problematic behavior for years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. That has been laughed along and they're not offended by that because again, that person is still there, but they will get more offended at people who challenge the system. When I have side conversations, side meetings, pull-asides, one-on-ones, what did you mean? What did you mean in that meeting? I just want to understand. And I don't know if this is the right approach. This is ruffling feathers and this isn't going to reach anyone. A lot of that is taking offense to how someone is presenting something. And you are more interested in scrutinizing the tone, the approach of someone who is raising the fact that racism and all the isms exist in that institution then the fact that you have longtime employees and longtime people who have been engaging in this behavior. You're more offended by that than, than the real problem. That's selective offense.
2: You've put it into words, and you're absolutely right. And I think, especially around the George Floyd incident, this really blew up. From this vantage point, because I've talked to so many different people at firms, at not profits just across the legal industry, we're hearing the same story over and over and over again, how people were having these conversations, more so then, and it was the same thing, folks getting tone policed, being told that they have to be careful with how they package their message. And don't get me wrong, like, we're lawyers, we understand the importance of knowing your audience, And there's still a time and a place to just be real and be honest and be candid about what's going on. And that's where the difference lies with selective offense. Is it actually offensive or are you defensive because we're calling out racism?
1: I want to also unpack the four stages that I talked about in selective offense because I think it really ties in how this happens. The first stage is people minimize and fail to admonish the harmful behavior. And I say harmful, harmful behavior here is racism, sexism, all the isms. People fail to admonish it, people minimize it. An example of that is it is what it is, and oh, well, and that's just how she is. Second, people impute charm or innocence to the harmful behavior. This is key. A lot of bad actors in these workplaces, people ascribe to them that they're funny, or they're charming, they ascribe innocence to them when in fact it's not actually innocent behavior. But I separate this out here to say why, because of who they're targeting. Because I have to say, a lot of most of the bad actors that I know, their jokes are specifically about people of color. They're not about white men, they're not about white people. And I often wonder if they were, if they would be found as charming or innocent. If they were to be really making jokes all the time about those in power, if they really were to be found as charming and innocent. So I think it's really important to recognize that they're often deemed as charming because we have been socialized as a society to find it funny to laugh at the dehumanization of people of color. I mean, you have to realize with lynchings, it was a whole fair. It was an entertainment. So the third part is people accept the harmful behavior. This has happened. Jokes are made continually. People accept it. That means people don't file complaints. People don't say, no, I am not listening to this joke or what you just said was actually very offensive and I don't want to hear it anymore. They just sit there, they laugh, they accept it. And then the fourth, and this is key, is that challenges to the harmful behavior are then seen as a character attack on the person rather than rectifying harm. Like I just described, you have a longtime employee, they're constantly mixing up people of color, they're constantly saying the wrong names, and then they're they're joking, oh, you know, I just, you know, their names are so complicated. It's been 10 years, they've been doing this, people accept it, and now someone wants to challenge it. Instead of the response being, well, actually, this behavior that Susan, that John is engaging in, is very harmful. They say, well, that's just how she is. That's her personality. Can't change it. That's her personality. Well, you can change. This is their behavior. But what I mean to say is they make it about the personality so that they can excuse themselves from doing anything. I have to say, I have never heard in, in my 10 years in legal services, I have never heard that's just their personality used for any person of color. I've never heard it at all. That's just how she is. That's, I've never heard it at all.
2: That sounds right to me. That definitely sounds right. And where, and where is the discussion of professionalism in these instances, right? And that's the whole point of the essay. Right. When this happens, where is like, well, that's unprofessional for that person to say that. That never comes up.
1: It becomes unprofessional to challenge exactly. it because then again, exactly. oh, it's a character attack. That's just how John is. He makes jokes, you know, and goodness me. Now you want to change people. And then it's like you're doing too much. And that's the sword and shield. That's professionalism racial construct. Yeah. And this is why it's called selective offense. People will sit up there in these workplaces and defend. And you are defending the person, by the way, by being quiet. Quiet. In silence is acquiescence. If you don't speak up, you're, you are essentially complicit. But most importantly, people will defend. People will say, well, that's just how she is. And then people will turn it around. And if you don't accept it, well, mm-hmm. what about you? Why can't you take a joke? Buy a threshold. Why don't you have a thick skin?
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And don't, don't add the layer of if this person is a rainmaker, if this <laughs> is the person bringing home all the yeah. coin then you really have thin skin, right? Right.
3: There's so many dynamics at play. So we've talked already just a little bit about George Floyd, the death of George Floyd, how it was silent and how after the summer of 2020, we started seeing a lot of movement. In your perfectly entitled section, justice is blind and the reasonable person is white. You describe a phenomenon that shook a lot of folks from marginalized groups in the legal industry, and that was a lack of reaction initially to George Floyd's death. Can you please describe what that was like at that time?
1: It was excruciating because more people were willing to come in and talk about that slap that happened at the Oscars with Will Smith and talk about the violence, and talk about how personally affected they are to see violence than they are to talk about essentially a black man being lynched on national television and multiple protests outside. I have to say that, and this is just a reminder, I work in what is considered social justice. So if I work in social justice and there was silence I want everyone listening to this podcast to understand that there was silence in the legal field. And there was silence really across the workplace. Almost all of my friends, especially in the legal field, we all talked about how there was just complete silence. And when I finally got to talking to people later on to understand why there was silence, there were a couple of responses that were the same across the board. The number one response was, I thought it might be rude. I thought it might be rude to bring this up. The number two response was, I'm not Black. I didn't think it was my place to bring this up. And when I say bring this up, I mean, they just meant just bring it up, period. Bring it up to a colleague. How are you doing? Anything. The number three response, and this is what I thought and this is why I delved into this essay, is it didn't relate to our work. And someone, I'm just going to flat out say, these aren't their exact words, but what they really said was, Black people have been being murdered for all the time. And so how was I supposed to know that this particular gruesome murder was something to say? Wow. Um, So then should I just say for Breonna Taylor, should I say for Ahmaud Arbery, like how am I supposed to know unless it really connects with what we do? Because then- I would have to bring up world events all the time. Wow. But I say that to say that that's that's a real pervasive thought that I think a lot of people have because we also see this months later where you have a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes. It's the same thing. People, People aren't saying anything. I'm not Asian, so I don't know. That It's the same thing. It was excruciating that first part to process that because honestly... And this is a one word comes up with a lot of my friends, black friends in legal service, who we all, we all at some point called each other. Like, are you experiencing, is anyone saying anything? And then we all, and I mean, when I say, but we, I mean, this was like maybe a group of 20 of us, we were all like, Oh my God, this is silence and all mm-hmm. across the board, different legal service providers. I think one word came up same, and it was betrayal. When these things were raised, the silence, the second part of it was, well, if you're gonna keep saying we have problems and you wanna be part of the solution, why don't you join the racial justice task force and talk about it? Why don't you teach us? What exactly do you wanna talk about your trauma? What exactly was it? What experiences have you had giving space to you? And so that's the betrayal part because it's one thing if you work at some Fortune 500 company, it's almost like an expectation, like, okay, people aren't going to be, people might not understand. Okay, whatever. But when you work in social justice and people worked there for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, working with Black and Brown clients, working with AAPI clients, POC, there's a little bit of a sense of betrayal. The first violence really was the astounding silence. But then the second was expecting me now and any Black person to teach, to talk to you about the deepest parts of trauma, Yeah, just to be blunt, honestly, in just the workplace, you generally don't talk about very personal feelings. And there was also an expectation of just talk about your vulnerabilities and how you feel. All of that is like very deep personal feelings. Yeah. It's only acceptable when it's,
2: when it's time for performance right? When it's time for folks to perform that they care about these issues, then there's time for your feelings. Then there's time and space for you to bring your whole self. But really, you should be able to bring your whole self and talk about your feelings every damn day. But you're absolutely right, Leah. And I I think I told you this when we reconnected. I was literally shooketh when I had my little stint in the not-for-profit world because I was one of those people who came in with rose-colored glasses and thought the private sector is it is what it is but when I go into the not-for-profit sector I'm gonna be thriving these are my good people yeah. doing the good work oh my god yes they're doing the good work I'm not taking away from that but let me tell you it is really hard to talk to people who believe that they are doing the quote unquote good work and only doing the good stuff. And you want to bring up these things because they think they're untouchable. And then let's not, e- let's not, let's not add the white saviors, right? That makes it even harder.
1: It is a field that is ripe white supremacy. Yeah. I think that this is what's jarring. I don't think that a lot of particularly white folks in social justice in the public interest, I, I, in the in legal field. I don't think that people understand that these conversations have been happening for a very long time. It's only that they're coming to the forefront, but the sort of yeah. elitism, the saviorism, the we got y'all at, on insecure HBO. I don't think that people understand that it's over. You know what I mean? No one's buying this. Yeah, sure. You might still engage in these behaviors. That doesn't mean that people aren't talking about it. That doesn't mean that people aren't challenging it quietly. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you still get to have this reputation as like you do this work. People are talking. People are talking when you uh, when you go for jobs. Yeah, I know people want to know how is this person to work with? Do they have this type of mentality of where they're like you said, the untouchable? People talk, and, and we keep receipts.
4: <laughs> Let's be real, and we keep receipts. Tying a lot of this all together, you mentioned a lot of your colleagues, I'm assuming largely white colleagues, didn't know like if or when to react to incidents like George Floyd's murder. You know, How was I supposed to know this was the one I was supposed to care about kind of attitude? Do you think that this contributes to like this expectation of neutrality, that we'll only care when you tell us to care? And in turn, does that make any reaction? too sensitive? And if so, then how do we start to combat that too sensitive narrative?
1: One of the things I wish would change is there is still this very pervasive mentality that the burden is on people of color to speak up about something. What I mean by that is let's say that there is a meeting and only white people are in that meeting, but something racist is said Let's say the comment is an anti-Asian comment. It was like, well, no one here is Asian, so no one here was offended, so we don't actually have to say anything because I'm not Asian. That is an example of placing the burden. And this happens very frequently. That's an example of only speaking up under the guise of white savior because that requires speaking up and they are in the driver's seat for that. But oftentimes when it is... Speaking up and there's no actual, I don't want to say there's no benefit, but it's just speaking up because you should, doesn't happen. So that's why a lot of like the word you used before, a lot of this is often called performative. But I've seen this happen before. People have gone to meetings and then they'll come into, oh, you know, as soon as I said this, I'm like, wait, what? Did anyone say this? They're like, no, no. I'm like, why? And they're like, well, what should we say? None of us were of the group that was targeted. So there's still a very pervasive mentality that the burden is on people of color to always point it out. And that needs to change.
4: I think jumping off of that, I will say as a white person, being in white spaces, if you say something, a lot of times you will get the response of, why do you care? Why are you saying anything?
1: Why do you care? Exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's why do you care? And people do speak up, white people specifically, let me just pause and say one of the things I have taught myself after and during the process of writing this essay is to stop normalizing whiteness by saying just people and meaning white people and being afraid to just say white people. First of all, a lot of Black people don't really use the term African-American. It's only in this day and age. But as a lot of terms are often just used by people who are not in the group. So I've realized even in my language, even saying the word Black sometimes You know, and I'm like, yes, I'm going to say that I'm not going to use the term African American in the legal article. I'm going to say black. If I say people and I mean white people, I'm just going to say white people, because just saying people and meaning only white people normalizes that the only people who could exist are white people. So I just want to pause and say that. But what has happened frequently is a white person will speak up and say, well, I was kind of offended by the fact that you made this anti-Asian comment. Then they will get the response of, Well, why do you care? You're not Asian. Why do you care? Why do you care so much? And then because they're cornered, and this has happened a number of times, they'll actually go and talk to a person of that group, an AAPI person, and then they'll be like, Oh, that is anti Asian. And then they'll come out and be like, Well, actually, Molly who is chinese-american she's also offended and i'm like oh god this has happened a number of times but a lot of that stems from the fact that i don't know what it is about lawyers they need a plaintiff for a case or something but it's like you don't need a specific person to prove that something is offensive but oftentimes in these scenarios you're like well do you know of anyone who's particularly offended do you know if anyone has said anything and it's like i don't need to know i'm offended that's okay i don't need to be in the group i'm just offended I think that that's spot on, but I just want to say that we do need to have more people speaking up and we do need to have more white people speaking up and we do need to have more white people specifically pushing back and saying, we don't need a plaintiff. We don't need a plaintiff to prove this. I am offended by the fact that you said this offensive racist term for AAPI and I can be offended within that. We don't need someone to come and give proof.
2: Our final question to you is, how do we move forward? How do we deal with calling people out or in for both the people who are doing the calling out and the people who are receiving it? How do we move forward?
1: A lot of times since writing the essay, people have asked me, I'm active on social media and obviously I'm active in the community. And I have gotten at least 10 times people have come to me privately and go, how are you so brave in speaking up? How are you so brave and calling things out. You know what it is? It's like as if you've had an abusive relationship and when you were in it, you were in a bubble and you couldn't see it. And then you got out and now you're processing everything. And so two things happen. The first is you're processing like, wow, that was actually really abusive. And then you're going through all of the ways that this happened. And then the second part is you feel shame. And you feel humiliation that you were even in this, that you allowed this to happen. And that's me. For me, the abuse was the anti-Blackness, was the misogynoir. Oftentimes, under the guise of professionalism, I was the person that in the moment, I didn't speak up. I froze. I didn't want to look unprofessional. I didn't say anything. I swept it under the rug. I went and talked to colleagues later to obsess about whether or not to get validation from someone else to say, was this racist or not? Is this something I should be upset about? The first step is give yourself validation. Give your own thoughts validation. So limit yourself from going to other people to describe what happened, to be like, am I ridiculous right now? Is this way? Limit that. If you feel like someone attacked you, you feel like someone attacked you because a lot of this is diminishing our own thoughts and suppressing it. So the first part is validate your own feelings. Don't go to everyone or even anyone and say, well, did this happen? No, this happened. I don't like it. I feel like it was racist. They wouldn't have done it to anyone else if I was white, period. The second thing is speak up. I have had many of instances now And like the reason why I said the story before about the feeling, the shame and humiliation of when you realize like, goodness, I used to put up with so much. Well, after you realize that you don't put up with it anymore, you start speaking up and you're not afraid to do it because you Mm -hmm. don't want to go back. You know what the impact was on your mental and physical health of not saying anything for such a time. So you speak up. I want to also say to folks listening that it's important for you to also give space to your colleagues who are also marginalized. When someone else is coming to you, when Tony comes to me and says, "Well, this happened." Are you sure? Oh my God, I've never had that experience with him. No, no, no. Give space. A lot of this again is validating, give space to that. The second part of that is instead of helping the person be quiet about something and stay in the status quo and not challenge it, talk about how you're going to challenge that status quo. Talk about how you're gonna challenge it. The third and the final part is watch your energy. A lot of times the impact of racism is that you spend so much time and energy just navigating it that you're not even able to live life. You're not able to do your action. In this context, you're not even able to do your actual job because half the time you're spending talking to other people. Did you see that the meaning? What did you think? Did you forwarding emails? What do you think this means? How should I respond? It's a lot of time and energy. And this is why I say you need to limit the time and energy in the beginning. Don't spend time for others validating your feelings. It is what you think it is. I wanted to say that I've done a bunch of social media spaces, a Twitter space, and I had no idea how much this resonated in particular with people in the medical profession, nurses, doctors, especially, and also journalists. There were only like one or two lawyers and everyone else was in these two professions. And it was really huge. We had someone who was truck drivers who came, but it's well beyond the legal profession. So those are my three steps. And the big part of it is to speak up, file those complaints, send those emails to higher ups. Yes. When this, and I say when, because it will, when this becomes more normalized, like everything else in the United States, like the civil rights movement, like it, things change things will change the culture will change but it won't change if people stay in the status quo
2: a hundred percent and i know what my next step is leah i'm going to have your essay printed in a booklet form and i'm going to hand out the good word in front of every place i can (laughs) because everyone needs to read this everyone needs to read this if you have not read this essay yet (laughs) get it on now we'll put the link read this essay send it to your colleagues send it throughout the industry and beyond because this is not just about the legal industry it is in all of our institutions doctors pharmacists teachers have similar stories it is the same racism it is the same power dynamics so i think everyone can benefit from this essay and thank you so much for being here with us i honestly think that i I can't even tell you we have been so giddy We've just been so giddy about having you. And this has just been the best conversation. So thank you.
1: So nice. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building Belonging with your hosts, Tanya Martinez-Gallanucci, Angie Avila, and Mary Ellen LaRosa. We hope you enjoyed our discussion with Leah Goodrich on professionalism as a racial construct. Head on over to the description to find a link to the essay and sign up for our e-newsletter. If you're keen on making an impact and being a part of our work, become a City Bar member and join a committee. The membership form with the one-time admission fee waived can be found in the description. We would like to thank our gala advocates of the Diversity and Inclusion Celebration Dinner, which will be held on October 27, Lord LLP, New York Life Insurance Company, and Davis Wright Tremaine LLP. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.